Listener Production. So this is the terrifying moment the Fakari White Island volcano erupted in late 2019. Behind rocks. So this is phone footage where you can see the tourists scrambling as the plumes of hot steam and gas spew into the air, sending rocks and ash towards 47 tourists who were there walking right in the crater of this volcano. We know that 22 people died that day, 17 were Australians. And the whole premise of that experience was that you get to walk in an active volcano crater. But tragically, the tourists weren't warned just how active it was that day. And this is why, three and a half years later, the owners of the island and two tour operators are on trial for allegedly failing to protect tourists and staff. Accountability is very important and they want to know why Mm. they were allowed on the island that day and how this can happen, especially, I guess, in a country such as New Zealand. They probably thought that they were safe. Yeah, the Fakari White Island trial kicked off in Auckland this week, and it is so interesting. You'll get the full story in our briefing. First, today's headlines with Jan Fran. It is Thursday, the 13th of July. G'day, Tom. We're starting with some news coming out of the NATO summit in Lithuania. So we are sending another 30 Bushmaster military vehicles to Ukraine. And that takes our total commitment to 120. Australia is inspired by your leadership, your resilience of the Ukrainian people, the courage that you are showing in fighting not just for your national sovereignty, but fighting for the international rule of law. That was the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese there. Um, Very complimentary of Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky uh, after meeting him at the NATO summit, Tom. Yeah, and he's a very important person at this summit, Vladimir Zelensky. Yesterday, the news was that he was really unhappy that NATO hadn't provided a timeline of when Ukraine could join. And obviously this is really important because if Ukraine was a part of NATO, Europe basically would be at war with Russia. Overnight, he seems to have changed his tune, saying that the meeting with NATO was a success. So I guess he's he's the man that everyone's watching for his reactions at the moment. So the RBA governor, Philip Lowe, has given what might be his last speech in the job. So yesterday he announced that the RBA, and these are some of the changes recommended in the review, that the RBA will meet eight times a year instead of 11 and the board will sit for longer. The less frequent and longer meetings will provide more time for the board to examine issues in detail and to have deeper discussions of monetary policy strategy, alternative policy options and risks as well as on communication. Yeah, so this is part of a suite of changes. The other one is that after they give their decision in future, they'll do a press conference, which could be interesting, Jan. Mm, I'm not sure what you make of all of this. I I like the idea of a press conference. I think the public has a right to know some of the machinations and decision-making that go into, you know, rising interest rates because they do affect everyone so tangibly. I don't know if it's great for Philip Lowe to be fronting them every month because he's he's been a bit gaff prone in the past. I don't know if you remember, Tom, he told renters uh, that, you know, if they wanted to kind of ease up on costs, they should move back home with their parents or get a flatmate. Uh, not hugely helpful of advice. Granted, that wasn't said in a press conference. 
But I wonder how, how leaders tend to go when they don't usually front the press and then suddenly have to do it consistently. Well, this is a, a particular case because every word he says is picked over because it affects financial markets and personal budgets so much. So, look, I think some public servants can give these sort of long press conferences and it would be fine. But for the RBA governor, it's going to be so tricky because people are hanging on every word. And that's why mm. they give those very carefully worded written statements after their decisions. So I'm not sure how much it really helps. And I also think it's fairly superficial anyway. What really matters is what interest rates they set. You know what it sort of has shades of for me? The daily press conferences that we used to hear during COVID (laughs) that were just so intense and we were there at a certain time in the day listening intently, listening for those figures. Oh, I don't want to go back to that. Stuff that, I reckon. And some big news on the right to work from home. So the Commonwealth Bank is being taken to court by the Financial Sector Union. This is over its rules, forcing workers back into the office 50% of the time. What do you reckon, Tom? You're not not loving that idea? Well, yeah, I'm surprised at the backlash. I, I think it's, I sort of back, you know, hate to say it, but I back ComBank on this. I think asking your workers to come in at least 50% of the time is still fairly lenient. You know, think back to before the pandemic, we were at basically 0% work from home. So to move to 50%, the people can still work from home half the time. I think that's fairly reasonable um, because there's so many benefits to coming into work. Mm, I think what the union is saying is that the employees weren't necessarily consulted about the changes and that's one of the things they have a problem with. But this is something that's being you know, reckoned with all over workplaces, public or private. The public Mm. sector, for example, um, made a ruling that working from home is a right for federal public servants. So a slightly different tact there. This was a deal that was struck by their union that removes government employers' rights to set a minimum number of days that workers have to show up at the office. Slightly different to ComBank. Well, yeah, you've got a difference there between the public and the private sector, and I'm not surprised that they're being a bit tougher on the private sector. I am surprised, though, that the former Victorian Premier Jeff Kennett came out and said that those who wanted to work from home should be paid less because they end up saving money on travel and, you know, all of the periphery spending that happens when you have to work in an office. So if you're not spending that, you should be paid less. Thanks, Jeff. And neurosurgeon Charlie Teo's career has taken a massive blow with the Healthcare Complaints Commission Professional Standards Committee handing down the finding that he engaged in unsatisfactory professional conduct. It was investigating the surgeon over futile operations that left two patients in a vegetative state and they never regained consciousness and later died. There's some detail here. So he basically according to this ruling, now has to get the approval of a neurosurgeon of 15 years' experience if he does want to operate in Australia. Initially, that period of time was 20 years' experience. So in some ways, there's been some leniency on his conditions. Uh, But Charlie Teo says that having to get the sign-off of another neurosurgeon, whether it's 15 years' or 20 years' experience, effectively means that he won't be able to work in Australia, that it will um, hamper him entirely. So that's sort of where he's at at the moment. But he's got a lot of supporters though, doesn't he? 
He does, yeah. There's a lot of people, you know, there, there are lives that he's saved. Um, so that has built a, a, a loyal bunch of support. But yeah, he's become a very controversial figure for the types of surgeries he does because he often operates where no other surgeon will go, which is why that restriction um, will have such a big impact on his work. And a billionaire breakup. First, it was Bill and Melinda Gates. Now, Australia's $30 billion couple, Andrew Twiggy Forrest and his wife, Nicola, are splitting after 31 years of marriage. Um, but they say, hang on, this is the caveat, they say they're not divorcing. Okay, not sure what that means. They're just separating and, I guess, continuing all of their business and philanthropy ventures together. Well, good luck to them, I suppose. In other news, the nominees for the 75th Emmy Awards have been announced this morning. Um, I don't know if you hugely care about the Emmys. I do because I love Succession and I think every single actor, and I'm talking even the guest actors in Succession, uh, have been nominated for an Emmy, um, including... Our very own Sarah Snook, Australian actress who plays Siobhan Roy. She copped a nomination for Best Actress in a Drama Series. Good honour. Yeah, that's when I start to care when you see Aussies doing well like Sarah Snook or, or Murray Bartlett, who's also up for two nominations as well. So good luck to them. All right, Jen, we'll catch you again tomorrow. Um, time to talk about the White Island volcano disaster. Now to the Fakari White Island tragedy, which is being intensely scrutinised in an Auckland court after a work-safe trial finally commenced this week. Now, there are already so many fascinating elements being played out in the courtroom, from the story of how these three brothers came to own this island, to the history of the volcano itself, and of course, the bigger question, why wasn't more done to assess the risk of visiting this active volcano crater. Emily Clark is reporting on the trial for ABC News. Emily, thank you so much for joining us here on The Briefing. Can you explain the nature of this case? What kind of trial is it? Who's bringing the charges and what are the charges? Yeah, so the charges are different breaches of New Zealand's Workplace Health and Safety Act. And so it is the workplace regulator, WorkSafe New Zealand, that has brought the charges And the charges vary slightly across the defendants. Um, The defendants are 13 different parties. Three are individuals, the men who own Fakari, and then 10 entities, 10 businesses. One of those businesses does belong to those brothers who own the island. So it's a huge trial. I can talk a little bit about what's happened with the charges and the pleas. Mm. Well, that is interesting. So part of the drama of this trial is not just the pain and and natural drama of a volcano erupting while people were walking on the crater, but also in the lead up to this trial, more and more parties, as it got closer, right up until Friday, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. finally pled guilty just on the eve of the trial. So of the 13 that were originally charged, there are now six that have gone to trial this week. Four of those are the family, really, who own the island. So three individuals and their management company. That was the commercial entity in the kind of arrangements um, that was being paid for tours happening on the island. Okay, so the three brothers that own it, their company and two other tour operators? Yes, there's the Buttle family and, and they'll be a big part of the case and we heard a lot about them from the prosecutor mm. on day one. But the other part of the case which will be really interesting is the supply chain um, that a tourist goes through 
to get on that tour on that island. A lot of the 47 people who were on the island that day were cruise ship passengers. So Mm. they'd booked a cruise and then ended up in the crater of a volcano. And so what are the different entities Mm. along that supply chain? There's the actual tour company Mm. that takes them to the island, but there's the booking agent, the local agent. And so the two defendants, the other two defendants that make up the six are part of that supply chain, some local agents. Yeah. And so who will bear the responsibility? That will be the question determined in this trial. So interesting. Uh, one element that really caught my attention is is these three brothers that own the island. Firstly, I didn't realise it was privately owned. And then I read a little bit more about the backstory of how they came to own it, that it was their grandfather that bought it. And this is all part of the trial. So tell us a bit more about the story of, of how these three brothers came to own the island. They inherited a volcano. Their grandfather, George Buttle, acquired it in 1936. He was a stockbroker in Auckland. And it's been in their family ever since. So in the 50s, it passed to their father. And then in the mid 2000s, he passed away and it moved to their mother and the three brothers. And then a few years later, the ownership structure seems to have changed. And this is something the prosecutor spoke about on day one, where it's sort of held in trust. So why did their stockbroker grandfather buy the island in the first place in the 1930s? So early in the century, there were some, I guess, other commercial attempts outside tourism involving Fakari. And one of those was a sulphur mine that failed ultimately. And it had been set up on on Fakari, but an eruption happened and 10 miners died. That was early in the century. Yeah. So there's already a tragic story to this island. Very early. Yeah, very early in the century and before the Buttles owned mm. it. And then, you know, there was another project attempted that um, had something to do with salt kind of extraction. And my understanding is that George Buttle was involved in that, but it failed and he saw an opportunity to acquire it as a private kind of asset. So how did this island go from this private asset that was just sitting out there in the sea that these three brothers inherited from their father and before that their grandfather to the operation that it was by 2019. What's the story of the business model? The WorkSafe lawyer, Christy McDonald, talked a little bit about this and she said that there there was like an informal arrangement where there was originally kind of boat tours that would come to the island mm. and the family requested that a donation be made at that time. To who? To charity or to them? To charity is what what, um, Ms. McDonald said. And so it was a really informal kind of arrangement is the way Mm. she characterised it. But that's evolved over time to become a much more commercial arrangement. Okay. And so how did the financial arrangements work between the company owned by the brothers and the tour operators? So the court heard some detail on this and, and Christy McDonald said these brothers were earning about a million dollars a year in profit mm. from Fakari. She said they don't pay rates on Fakari. So this is sort of an asset that sits there and earns money mm. for them and for their company, Fakari Management Limited, who is one of the defendants. She said there is a licensing fee paid by tour operators. And she sort of went into quite a lot of detail around the exclusive arrangements that Fakari Management Limited allegedly has with 
different tour operators in different regions. So mm. whether you're coming from Auckland or whether you're coming from Whakatane, that you might you have that exclusive arrangement as mm. that tour operator is, is what she detailed. And then also that there is a commission. Christine McDonald alleged that for every tourist that visited the island, Fakari Management Limited earned a commission. Mm. Okay, so there's with the different operators they partner with, there's a licensing fee, which is a set figure, and then a commission per visitor. And the reason we're going into this level of detail and the reason the court is going into this detail is because this may determine how much responsibility the owners of the island have versus the responsibility of the tour operators to keep the tourists safe. Yeah, we can't know uh, really the extent of the prosecution's argument, but it was an extensive history on day one and a lot of time spent on the commercial arrangement. Mm. And eventually it will all go back to whether they did enough to keep the tourists safe, whether they did enough risk management. Yeah, exactly. And that was, I think, part of talking about the fact that this island was generating a million dollars a year in profit was then talking about, well, what was spent to assess the risk. And WorkSafe's case, particularly in relation to Fakari Management Limited, is about did they understand the risks and then did they take steps? Is there any sense of what would have been an adequate risk assessment? Well, what Christine McDonald told the court is that there was an approach from Fakari Management Limited to GNS Science, which is New Zealand's kind of Commonwealth Crown Research Institute mm-hmm. and Volcanic Monitor, and interestingly was one of the defendants that pled guilty early on. Wow. Yeah, fascinating. The prosecution's allegation is that they had pr- approached GNS and that they had tried to pass the cost of that expert risk assessment onto the operators, the licensees, and then just tried to also to get a discount. So that's what's been alleged. I'm sure there'll be some defence to that, um, but it is an interesting little detail. So did they go through with getting that advice? No, they did not. Right. The wording I remember very clearly from Christy McDonald was she looked up and she said, and they chose not to pay for it. Right. So there was some negotiation about the fees and who would pay the fees, but eventually they didn't go through with that research. That's what the prosecution is alleging, yeah. Mm. So the other really interesting thing that happened just on day one of this trial was also the seismic history of this volcano. That's a key part of the evidence. You know, when we think of volcanoes, you might think of lava and you might have seen pictures of people kind of standing on the edge of a volcano. This Fakari is not like that. This was a pyroclastic eruption. So that steam and gas and rocks kind of being thrown around the crater Mm. and it's collapsing in on itself Mm. is the way that Christine McDonald described it in this section of day one. And she talked about the periods of of volcanic activity that Fakari had been through Mm. over, you know, since records began. And she talked about a period that began in 2012 and an eruption that happened in 2016. So in 2016, tours were happening Mm. on Fakari, but this Mm. eruption happened at night time. So no one was there. Maybe not even as many people saw it. Mm. And so nobody died. But there was a part that I found quite chilling in that GNS issued a bulletin the morning after the eruption to Mm. say, there's been an eruption. We had 
increased the level to level two. We've dropped it back to level one, but we are no longer permitting our staff to travel to Fakari and to be in the crater. And two has happened that day mm. is what the prosecution alleged. So she said two has continued notwithstanding the notice from GNS, the volcanic monitor, that they would not be sending their staff. So she's really used this 2016 um, eruption as a bit of an example and I think that will come up again. So there was a part of day one where we got to the play-by-play mm. of what happened on December 9, 2019 and Christy McDonald talked about the days before even into November and what had been happening in the months before Mm. in terms of the seismic activity and the volcanic activity. And she said that on the evening of December 8, there was a large spike in the seismic activity and there was some kind of geysering observed. Mm. The part that really struck me was that she said a draft volcanic alert bulletin was being prepared on the 9th of December, but it was not issued because of the eruption. So at 7.30 in the morning, passengers are disembarking ovation of the seas, Mm. hopping onto a tour coach, Mm. travelling to the tour office at Fukutane, getting their boarding pass, hopping on a boat. By 1.15, they're arriving at a jetty on Fakari. Meanwhile... What the prosecution is alleging, an alert was being drafted. And at 2.11, the eruption happened. So did that alert ever come out? The way that the prosecution has framed that is that they never got a chance to send it out. The eruption happened while it was being drafted. So this is going to go on for four months. There's so much interest, so much drama, but the fines don't seem that big. 1.4 million is the maximum for the companies, and 280000 for the individuals. We're talking about an island that's been running tours for decades, making a million dollars a year. Even if they're found guilty of these charges and, and face the maximum fine, do you think that will feel like justice for the victims? I can't speak for families and for survivors, but in speaking to them over the years... I think accountability is very important and they want to know why Mm. they were allowed on the island that day and how this can happen, especially, I guess, in a country such as New Zealand. They probably thought that they were safe. I think the interest in it tells us that there are a lot of people wondering what happened that day and the events leading up to it. And this, this really is one of the first opportunities for them to hear that evidence. That was Emily Clark from ABC News and we'll keep you updated on the trial as it progresses and then even when it's done there could still be more to come given that there's every possibility the families may commence civil proceedings and sue for damages. Listener.